morning again. And also, again, thank you so much for all the uh, pastor appreciation, uh, paraphernalia and gifts. And um, it's July now. I guess it's over. <laughs> As we do with our uh, end-of-the-year offerings, if you get it in by July, <laughs> can count for June. If you'll turn uh, to Revelation chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15. I've entitled this, The Beast of the Earth, a Lamb or a Dragon. Revelation 13, verses 11 through 15, hear now the word of God. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would grant us an understanding of these very intense words that we read here in this final book of Scripture. I pray for myself that the things I say would be accurate to your text. I pray for all who would hear that you would give us discerning, godly, biblical minds, that we might know your thoughts, and that, Father, they might become our thoughts. We might know your warnings and that we would be well-warned and wise, and Father, in the way that we respond to your instruction, that we might ever seek to be overcomers and persevere in the faith. So, Father, we do pray that you would grant these things. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Though it's not a uh, Christian book, I found... uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point to be pretty eye-opening in terms of cultural norms. Malcolm Gladwell is kind of a pop sociologist who writes very popular books. It may also be somewhat, I don't know, accidentally accurate in terms of a biblical understanding of the influence of Israel's surrounding nations. He he writes about cultural norms and how things become cultural norms. And I mention Israel's surrounding nations because there's this this repetitive refrain in Scripture to not imitate those surrounding nations. Don't you, people of God, be like the nations by which you're surrounded. And I think Gladwell almost kind of accidentally stumbles upon the fact that this is something that very much can happen even within the church. The topic that he really highlights in this book, or at least one of them, is the taking of one's own life. He observed that in Micronesia, there was a time when suicide was almost unheard of. But then a well-known young man 
had a conflict with his dad and decided that he would take his own life. And the event was very highly publicized. He was a popular person. He was a well-known person. And within just a few decades, the suicide rate in Micronesia became roughly eight times that which we see in the United States. It also became romanticized, suicide, in literature and in music. I mean, we've seen this happen. You know, there was a movie that came out years ago called Thelma and Louise. You might want to put it on your must-miss list. (laughs) But, you know, the movie, spoiler alert, culminates with them deciding, you know, it's all romantic, we're going to drive our car into the Grand Canyon and die. I mean, these types of things kind of capture the culture. That this young man in Micronesia would respond that way to difficulty, at least it's supposed, gave others in that culture a sort of permission slip to respond similarly. They saw him do it, so I guess that's an option. This is a way, this is, this is an out to my, to my difficulty. And it was a highly used option. I have to tell you, I mean, just the way my own psyche is developed, I have a hard time getting my arms around that. I have a hard time getting my arms around the idea that some famous person is going to do this, therefore I'm going to do it. I mean, I don't know, but when you look at cultural norms, for example, even in our nation, when Marilyn Monroe, at least it was reported that she committed suicide, I know it's a big debate about whether she did or not, but it was reported the suicide rate in the United States went up 12%. So you're like going, what's going on in the minds of the masses that when popular people do this, regardless of what it is, something as awful, as horrifying, as reprehensible as taking your own life now becomes an option. All this to say that we are not immune to the powerful influences that surround us. I don't think it's wise to go Well, other people, but not me. We need to be aware of our own vulnerabilities. And what we're going to see in these five verses is John, by the Holy Spirit, warning these churches regarding the influence by which they're surrounded. The massive and powerful influence of this second beast. Verse 11, and I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Well, we have spoken about the first beast. Now we're on to the second beast. The first beast was from the sea. This beast is not from the sea. This beast is from the land. It does not have ten horns like the first beast, but only two horns and no crowns. Remember, the first one had... Ten horns and crowns. I mean, it was, a, it was a emblematic of political power. This beast does not seem to have the level of military might that the first beast, nor is it a political power. It doesn't have the crowns. Its power appears to be in its ability to lie to you. Its power is in its ability to manipulate. 
And when you get right down to it, its power is going to be in its ability to market the first beast. You got that first beast, which I take to be the Roman Empire or whatever individual Caesars there were, and this second beast is promoting the first beast. The second beast is his manager. He's going to make sure that if you, you know, click on social media, he's the first thing that you're going to see. Now, you have this reference to a lamb, right? He's a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Where do we go with that? The lamb in the Bible is clearly a redemptive animal, right? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, you had the sacrificial paschal lambs and what have you. But this is a little different. How does this lamb speak? He speaks like a dragon. Well, if you've been bold enough to talk to your friends about your Christian faith, you have to have heard this objection. So much evil done in the name of religion. I mean, it's just all over. And when people say that to me, I don't disagree with them. I go, well, you must have been reading the Bible to come up with that conclusion. Because the Bible is full of evil done in the name of religion. The biggest detractors of Jesus were who? Priests. So both in history and in Scripture, the greatest evil is done in a religious context. And this person, this beast, he is seeking to get the, the nation to worship. So he's, a, he's really essentially a religious figure. But he's a liar. Well, it is in the context of religion and false teachers that the Apostle Paul wrote this. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. I mean, if if you're the devil, you don't want to dress up as snidely whiplash. Okay, I just really lost a lot of you, right? Like, yeah, everybody who's laughing is my age and and over. I I think he was Dudley Do-Right's, that'll make it clearer, Dudley Do-Right's nemesis. He was a bad guy in the cartoons, and he'd twiddle his mustache. You know, you don't disguise yourself as an evil-looking person if you're the devil. You disguise yourself as, I'm here to help. I'm going to take care of you. We've got this first beast. You need to pledge allegiance to this first beast, and that first beast will take care of you. No worries. The second beast wants to elevate the first beast to the status of God. This will be necessary for the first beast, which again I take to be Rome or the Roman Empire or whatever particular Caesar happens to be in place, which would have probably been Nero. But that status of deity, that status of godhood, is going to be necessary in order for that beast to maintain his authority over all aspects of our lives. I I need that beast to take care of me in every conceivable category, every metric that there is in terms of my existence. In order to achieve this devotion, this second beast presents himself 
as a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. I guess if I were to want one thing for you to walk out of here with is this newfound desire to be able to tell the difference between when a true lamb is speaking and when the dragon is speaking. Do you know a lie when you hear it? I mean, with, with proper lighting, with winsome music, with sweetness of tongue, the most demonic human affairs can win our hearts. I remember when I was in, uh, I think I had just become a Christian, and I was at a friend's house, and this other buddy of mine, who was probably about four years older, was kind of mentoring me, and there was a movie on. And in the movie, there was uh, somebody given a prayer, and he, I think he called it, you know, the atheist prayer. And it, and it, but, you know, again, the music was playing, and I think they had, like, wheat fields, and it was blowing, and, you know, and I'm sitting there listening to this heretical prayer. You know, and I'm, like, 18 years old, and I'm totally buying it. And my buddy literally came over and goes, turn the TV off. He's, man, you got to get yourself together here. Because, because I was being won over, right? By, by the tone, by the environment. At, the age, at that age, I just didn't really have the discernment to kind of go, wow, this sounds really good, but it's actually really, really bad. I mean, I could have picked almost any place out of the Proverbs to aid us in this. Proverbs 5, 1 and 2, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. You know, you would talk about a pandemic. I think there's a pandemic of wisdom in the world in which we live. You know, the Bible speaks that way. There's going to be a famine, but not of food. There's going to be a famine of my word. And I kind of feel like we're seeing that. The lack of ability not only for the world, but even for the church to understand what in the world is going on and so easily be won over by unsound thoughts. I would pray that we might be wise to know falsehood when it comes. I don't want a church that's full of like constant critics, right? Where every last single thing that's said, you're Rex Reed, you know, kind of picking every little thing apart. Rex Reed was a critic, <laughs> film critic. I got to get some new material. Yet at the same time, you know, you've got to, there's got to be something inside of you going, that's just not adding up. And the way that we develop in our hearts and in our minds the ability to know a lie when we see it is to have our own hearts filled with wisdom. And where does that wisdom come from? It comes from Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you know the Christ of the Scriptures, then you will have the ability to know the falsehoods when you're presented with them. Friends, you need to be in the Word You need to know, you have to be hungry for it. 
like a dog with a bone, you know, and you just chew on it and chew on it, and you get into the marrow, and you need to know the Word of God, otherwise you're an easy victim to that dragon who's presenting himself as a lamb. Verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Well, there's a great deal of speculation regarding the identity, by the way, of the second beast. We haven't really gotten into that. Some say the second beast is Satan. Some say the second beast is the Antichrist or the Roman imperial priesthood, the Roman Catholic Church. Some people say, well, it's false teachers in general. And I would say, you know, at some level, depending upon the, the continued application of this, um, all of those have some merit. That, that type of person, that, that type of movement, that, that type of thing can come from all sorts of different angles. I, at least for me, I think the weight of the study led me to conclude that the original readers who received this probably understood this to be the emperor cult. So there was a first century emperor cult. They were the ones who sought to promote the deification of the Caesars. So, so you have this emperor cult who are going, look, at it, we, need to, we need to think of our Caesars, we need to think of our king more highly than just a normal person. So I would, if you were to ask me, I mean, I'm, you know, I wouldn't die on this hill, but I would say it's probably the emperor cult. That's who the second beast is. And they're promoting the first beast, which I would argue would be the Roman Empire and more specifically, whoever happened to be the Caesar at the time, which was probably Nero, but we'll get into that more next week. But instead of exercising his authority, the second beast, in the presence of God, as a faithful priest would, right? The faithful priest exercises his service in the presence of God. This one exercises his authority in the presence of the first beast, Right? They're on the same page. He is here to serve him, and the, the first beast is kind of like, I'm on board. I think it can aptly and very safely be said of both of them that they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Again, now there's a lot of speculation regarding the deadly wound. I'm not going to rehash that. We talked about that before. This, this wound that was healed he seemed to be dead, and then he's back to life. I, I think it is very likely the ongoing Caesars ruling over the Roman Empire. You know, one dies, and you have another one. One dies, and you have another one, and so forth. At the same time, let's not lose sight of how this strikes of a parody of Christ who died and rose again. Now, at what level the writer intended this, I don't know. But I think it is not very difficult to convince a people to put their trust in a state which seems invincible. Even the death blow does not end its authority. You, you, I mean, we as a, as a people, I think, and I think there's a certain level of rightfully so that goes with this, have taken comfort in the nation in which we live. But maybe sometimes too much. 
But I, I don't doubt that the Roman citizens took very, a great deal of comfort in the fact that the Roman Empire was indestructible. It was the most powerful empire, likely, that ever existed on this planet. So we've got this idea where you're going, look, you need to put your trust in this empire that simply can't be stopped. It appears dead, but it's not dead. It comes back. I think Beale is accurate. He's a theologian who's written a lot of pages on the Revelation. But I think he was right when he said this. Whereas the true prophet was to lead people to worship God, this prophet leads them to worship the state. You know, I mean, that may sound um, conspiratorial, but if you study human history, you realize that it, it is not uncommon for nations to reach that level where they are the ultimate in terms of the citizen. When you hear things like, we want to raise our children to be good citizens. Now, I'm not against that. But if that's the ultimate, that's a big mistake. We want our children to be raised in the faith. That We don't want them raised. I think if they are raised in the faith, they will be good citizens. And they should be good citizens. But I think ultimately, that is not the purpose. As, as Dewey, you know, who kind of took over our educational system, said, that's what education is all about. It's about making children citizens. And I think that should cause us to to pause when we hear things like that. The point I want to make here, though, is that whether we realize it or not, man is inherently religious. I know people kind of argue that. They would would object to such a statement. I mean, I have a lot of friends, you know, who've been very influenced by, you know, the modern neo-atheist, aggressive neo-atheist movement. You know, Hitchens and Dawkins and these guys. But let me tell you this, the moment, if I can make this very simple, the moment an ought comes out of your mouth, you're appealing to some overarching system of ethics to which you believe others should bow. The moment anybody says you ought to do that or you ought not do that, you are now becoming religious. You can call it whatever you want. You are invoking an immaterial presuppositional system of ethics that you think everybody else should bow the knee to. How is that not religious? The moment you tell me I shouldn't proselyte, it's wrong for you as a Christian to try to bring your system of ethics into the public square. It's wrong to do that. But, uh, you know, right away, we naturally get on our, you know, heels, but my question is, well, why is it right for you to tell me to do that? Why, why is it that I can't say this, but you can? Like, it seems to me to be a double standard. Yet we can't, you know, we can't fall for that. And I'm not saying we should be retaliatory or mean-spirited. But don't fall for the idea that you, know, you have nothing to say in terms of where this culture should go. Because anybody who at any time says we should do this or we ought to do that is inherently being religious. So I have a question for you. Don't shout out an answer. (laughs) Who or what do you suppose has won the hearts of modern man? There's a lot of options there. 
just something to think about. Like, who, who's in control of the, you know, of, the, of our zeitgeist, you know, the, the spirit of the age? In the context of the writing of the Revelation, this system that he's writing about, the system that, that they're marketing, was, was Rome. It was the Roman Empire. It was not unclear. And it was whoever the Caesar happened to be was the ultimate. He was deified. And this second beast, he was about succeeding in his business. Like, he is like, I am going to make this work, uh, verses 13 through 15. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. There's kind of an appeal there to... um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, but also even in the New Testament. Remember the apostles, when uh, they were getting a little resistance, asked Jesus, should we bring fire down on these guys? You know, they were maybe a little overly enthusiastic, but that's probably the, the reference there. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Well, just maybe if I can unpack this a little bit for you, you know, these great signs. I don't think it's terribly uncommon if you read your New Testament to see false signs or lying signs and wonders as we read in 2 Thessalonians. That wasn't an uncommon thing. Simon, remember Simon in, in Acts was uh, a person who was a, could do sorcery, you know. He apparently was able to perform some type of extra providential, supernatural activity. And he gained a reputation as a man of having the great power of God. We also see, I think, one of the more humorous stories in the Bible in Acts chapter 19. I won't tell you, we won't read the whole passage, but if you know the story... It, I guess I shouldn't think it's funny, but it, I think it's kind of funny. This verse isn't funny, but Acts 19.13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name, to call in the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So you have these people, you know, doing exorcisms. But if you read the whole passage, you'll realize they weren't even Christians. Just so you understand what goes on here, the, there's a demonic man, and they're like trying to perform an exorcism, and the demon s- says something interesting. <laughs> they go, well, we know who Paul is, and we know who Jesus is, but who are you? And then uh, the, they jump on these guys and, and beat them up, and they go running off naked. I'm like, what? I mean, I, there, had, there had to be somebody who thought that was amusing. (laughs) But the point here is you've got these supernatural things taking place in the context of the New Testament. So we we shouldn't be surprised that during the time of the apostles, there were great, albeit false, signs and wonders. And also, we have to be aware of this, I think, of this passage just to make sense to us. We need to be aware that the power to perform signs and wonders had as I would argue its primary purpose, the authentication that the one performing these signs was actually the voice from God. If you, we have a whole, I have a whole series on this in terms of 
the reason for these sign gifts. And the, what you'll find is if you, if you examine the miracles in the Bible, there are virtually every time attached to the fact that they're authenticating that what the person who performed the miracle is about to do is speak the word of God. And this you see over and over and over again in Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas, God confirming that they were speaking the word of God by their ability to perform signs and wonders. Or even when Jesus heals the man in, uh, you know, the paralytic man, you know, the guy who's raised, brought in through the, the roof, you know, that story. And, you know, so you get this altercation between Jesus and the, and the priest. And because um, what, what does Jesus do when they lower the guy? What's the first thing he does? He forgives his sins, right? And then they're like, well, who is this, you know, who is this guy that thinks he can forgive sins? And Jesus, kind of knowing their thoughts, said, you know, what do you think is easier to do, forgive sins or to have him stand up or heal him? I would argue that it was easier to have him healed because to forgive his sins meant going to the cross to die for those sins. But that, you don't get that immediately out of the text. But the point is this. He goes, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. And then he turns to the guy and he says, take up your pallet and walk. You see, the reason Jesus healed the man was so that the people around there would know that what he just said was true. And so what we have is the similar thing going on with these lying signs and wonders, this ability given to this second beast to perform these signs in order to win the trust of the people seeing him do it. But we have to also know this, that we read in Deuteronomy 13, that if even one has the ability to perform signs and yet does not tell the truth, we're, said, we're told, don't listen to him. Because there were, in fact, lying signs and wonders. You see, this beast is using whatever gifts he has to deceive. And it would appear that the primary purpose of this deception was to promote the first beast. There was to be unchallenged devotion to the state, period. You, you need, the, the whole idea of religion needs to be out of the discussion. To foster this devotion, we now see reference to an image that had to be worshipped. And to neglect the worship of this image, put your life in peril. I mean, obviously we think back of Daniel, right? And this idea that you had to bow before this image. But we have it again here in the Revelation. Interestingly enough, all the cities, and this is historical evidence, so it's not in the text, but all the cities addressed in Revelation, all seven of them, had temples dedicated, all of them, to the deity of Caesar. The idea here also behind giving breath, just to understand what's going on, you got this image, you're going to give breath to the image. Some people kind of argue, and again, I think there's some merit to it. They argue that it's kind of pseudo-magical tricks like ventriloquism or false lightning. Uh, these types of things were done actually in the courts of the emperors during this time. So this idea of putting on a, you know, a David Copperfield show where you're vanishing the Statue of Liberty or something, these were things that could happen, right? But I tend to take this breath and this ability to speak I tend to think of it as a little bit more uh, metaphorically in terms of the way things can influence us. Like there, you've, got, you've got something going on in this culture and 
it's talking to you and you're hearing it and it's influencing you. And again, I think Beale has a valid point when he writes this, talking about this idea of being able to speak and breathe words. This could include magical tricks, but is broader, referring to anything that convinces people that the image represents true deity. The idea here is that you need to be convinced that whoever is being marketed here is the absolute in terms of what is right and good and true. You don't need to go deeper than that. You need to trust your environment. You don't, don't try to be otherworldly on me. Keep your myth to yourself is the way I heard it recently. Now, I know that modern man thinks himself or herself too erudite to fall into this idolatrous trap. You're probably thinking, I would never. That, I am not easily influenced. There's no, there's no image that's going to be talking to me. I'm above that. We view ourselves as so informed. We view ourselves as so scientific. Yet I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's one in a hundred. If you were to do an infinite regress in terms of a discussion, who really knows why they believe what they believe or why they behave the way they behave. I mean, if you were to go, let's analyze why you believe what you believe. And you did this infinite regress, right? Well, why do you believe that? Why do you believe this? And why do you believe that? And you went all the way to the very end. It would be like one of the few theological conversations I ever remember having with my dad when I was about eight years old. And I'm like, Dad, why is grass green. And he's like, well, son, it's because of the chlorophyll. And I think he was pretty proud that he knew that. And then I said, well, why does chlorophyll make it green? And he got to the end of his science. And he gave an answer that to this day is the right answer. And you know what the answer was? He goes, son, because God made it that way. And uh, even though that was only one step I don't care. You could have 100 steps, but you're going to finally get to because God made it that way. You, you, can have, you can have a thousand science books, and at the end of the very last science book, it's going to be because God made it that way. And most of them know it. At least the wise ones know it. You know, Jesus told a parable about this idea of people kind of having this, sense, this empty sense of who they are in Matthew 12, 43 through 45, let's take a look at this parable. I think it so applies today, and I think it applied then to them. Jesus said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. So you got this kind of exorcism maybe that happens, right? The spirit goes out. Then he says, I will return to my home from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Right? So he leaves, he's cast out, he comes back, the Spirit of God's not in there, right? It's empty, it's nice and clean. So what does he say? Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. And then I think this is very interesting in terms of the study of the Revelation, because as I've mentioned, you know, that was a very wicked generation that uh, was receiving the judgment of God. And we see it once again here where Jesus says, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. So this is where they had gone. This is where 
you know, the covenant people had gone. They had gone to the state of spiritual emptiness, which allowed them to be the, the fodder for darkness. Friends, let me tell you, there is perhaps nothing more dangerous than a soul, or in this case, a collection of souls that are empty and swept and put in order. See, as horrible as anarchy is, at least anarchy fails to give the illusion of order. The generation during the time of Christ is not unlike our own, I think, in this respect. It is like a well-constructed, clean buffet for darkness. And there are any number of customers who will pick at it until it is subdued. That's what we have become. We have become a people not filled with the Spirit of God, but just empty. And now whoever comes in just grabs and picks and pushes and shoves. And the primary customer during the writing of the Revelation, not similar, I think, to our own current direction, is the state. Now, I don't have time to get into this now, you know, but just so you understand the relationship between the state and the devil. Maybe some of you are like, well, that's real easy for me to make. But in the Bible, it's very much made. I mean, there was, when, when Paul says that the devil, in, in um, Thessalonians says, the devil stopped us from going to such and such a place. And then when you read the account of what he was talking about, it was actually the magistrates who stopped him. But when, but when Paul looked at it more deeply, he realized, no, these are guys who are just working for the enemy. We, I think we, now, again, I don't want to become over-conspiratorial. You know, I'm an American. I like my country. I think it's the best ever, as far as countries go. All right, you don't have to get all amen about that, but nonetheless, <laughs> in, my, in my estimation... In my estimation, the Constitution is one of the grandest man-made documents ever to govern a society. I mean, maybe I would have preferred the Mayflower Compact. It's a little bit more triune. But nonetheless, pretty good document. But friends, it is, in fact, a man-made document. And I have to say, I cringe a little bit when I hear Christians appeal to it as a sort of final say in the matter. For we have seen of late something that maybe we didn't realize. And if, you, and if you hear interviews with the founding fathers, they'll say things like, it's only going to work with a Christian people. These documents are only going to work with a Christian people. And for a while, I remember thinking, why would that be? But now it's become so obvious to me why that would be. The only effective way in the context of this Constitution that we can be protected is for the Constitution to be read with a, through a biblical life and worldview. Let, let me give you one example. The liberties afforded by the Constitution to the people under its care means very little if we have no consensus on what actually defines a person. See, we've always taken that for granted. We know what a person is. 
We know what a man is. We know what a woman is. But we seem to have forgotten that. We don't know what a person actually is. So if the Constitution is defending people, and you can say, well, that's not actually a person, now the Constitution is of little value when it comes to an unborn person. Because you need to read it in light of what does the Scripture say about what a person actually is. You see, when the state... Now, let's, I wanna, what we see here is this amalgamation with the first and second beast of the state and the church. You've got the state and a religious system coming together. When the state takes upon itself the role of, divine, of defining these types of things, it becomes religious. That's what's happening in our government right now. It's becoming religious. It's bad religion, but it's religion nonetheless. It's insidious, but it's inevitable. They are going to become priests. It wasn't terribly long ago, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor. It's hard for me to enjoy movies. I'm a movie guy, you know. But it wasn't terribly long ago that books and movies had an arc that led their characters to the door of a church for redemption. You know, and they weren't even great theological movies, you know, with, and here's another reference, you know, with Bing Crosby, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, it all ends up at the church, and that's where the answer is. Now the church has become an object of ridicule. The, the, The church isn't the place of the happy ending. The church is the place to avoid. The church is an anachronism. It's it's antiquated. It's not on top of what's happening today. It's been replaced by secular, court-appointed psychologists and federal altruism. They're the ones, that's where we need to go, or the university. The happy ending is they go to a university where they learn there is no God, and they drink from the moment they wake up until they go to bed. What a happy ending that story has. That's, That's where we have arrived. Discussions regarding what defines a man or a woman or a marriage or a human are taking place now on Capitol Hill. That's where, and you're listening to these people, and you know maybe they have a degree in law or political science, but it doesn't seem like any of them have studied theology or even philosophy. You're listening to them go, these people would not pass a basic logic class. They wouldn't pass a basic class in philosophy. They don't know what they're talking about, but they're calling the shots. And let me tell you something else they have. They have the power of the sword. So that if you don't get on board, you will pay the price. They have a standing army, right? They can fine you. They can bill you. And they've monopolized that. It's a very dangerous direction. We recently had, along with Pastor's Appreciation Month, we had Pride Month, the same month. And in Pride Month, you know, they sought to celebrate the world's departure, or at least our culture's departure, from a biblical definition of a marriage, of what defines a a, a relationship. Now, I don't want to get too far into that right now. I do find it odd. I think they should change the name and pride. I mean, just so you understand, at least why I'm having a hard time connecting this, because The argument is you're born that way, but why would you be proud of something that you did nothing to accomplish? So the word pride doesn't seem to work for me. I mean, if you're going to be proud of something in a in a healthy way, at least have make the effort. You've made the effort. You won the game. 
Oh, yeah, I'm proud of you. But if you're like, well, you know, my mother gave birth to me. Why should I be proud? I should be proud of her, not proud of me. But we all know this. I mean, I don't know if you know this. You're going to hear me say it. That it's not about pride at all. It is, you'd better get on board month. That's what it is. Because I guarantee you, as brave as you all look, most of you would be scared to death to object to that in any public setting. To just go, yeah, you know what? I'm, I have a more biblical understanding of what it means to be married. So I, I don't really agree with the whole pride thing. Can you imagine saying that in the public setting? Maybe some of you have, but you know the pressure, the, the, you know, the the marketing device has really silenced people. But it's also kind of weird, too, because they, they're silenced, and yet, you know, and there's this whole, you know, there's whole, like, argument against Chick-fil-A, right? You know, I don't know where they are now. I, there was a time when, when it seemed like... But, uh, but everybody kept going to Chick-fil-A. Like, they were like, I'm going to silently show my support by getting a chicken sandwich with fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> now, let me just say this. I don't want to, I'm not encouraging a hostile disposition. And quite the contrary, you know, as I've said many times, the weapons of our warfare are love and faith and patience and truth and the Word of God. And these are the things, you know, that we need to use to engage I mean, we might want to add things like boldness and courage, a lack of fear to to that list. But I'm primarily stating here that we must be aware of our environment if the revelation is to be of current value to us. We need to know what's going on in the world in which we live. And if we're not aware of it, and we're not ready to do battle with it, it will come into the church. Right? It's religious. Again, and I, I just... I'm going to quote Beale again here, and you guys are probably wondering. It just so happened, I don't agree with Beale. He's, he's an all-millennialist, and I'm sure he's a great guy. But I happen to agree with a lot of the stuff he was saying in this particular, uh, these particular five verses, and I agree with this. I think it hits the mark here. Price's, and that Price is another theologian that he's quoting, Price's conclusion is confirmed by the fact that in Asia Minor, the culture increasingly expected public expressions of loyalty to the imperial cult. And the local civil authorities, not untypically mandated by law that the inhabitants of towns and cities show varying degrees of support for the imperial religion. You know, I mean, I don't know how you, you know, I mean, what the modern application is, we're going to have a parade and you better let us. You know, we're going to put it in the curriculum and you better let us. You need to show support of the direction that, that we're taking. Now, in our next meeting, we'll get, we're going to discuss the hotly debated subject. So bring your friends. The mark of the beast. Okay, we're going to get in next week. It's the mark of the beast. And we'll have hand stamps at the door <laughs> as you leave. For now, let us, let us be a people who really know who our true king is. We need to be a people who know who the king of kings 
actually is. Let, let us be a people who, though generally deferential to God-ordained human authority, let us be a people who know when we're coming dangerously close to the soul-damning proclamation made by the religious community during the trial of Christ, John 19.15, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. These were the priests who made this statement. Friends, let us not put our faith in a nation which appears to survive deadly wounds, but in a Savior through whom all of our wounds and sins are healed. Isaiah 53, 5, But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we do pray that as the people of God, we would take heed to that warning you gave the old covenant people of God to not be influenced by our surrounding nations. We do pray, Father, that as we see in the new covenant, it would be just the opposite, that the surrounding nations would be influenced by your people. And that, Father, that good news would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Help us, Father, not to be afraid to proclaim that which is good and right and true, even in the face of social um, difficulty and even if possibly a legal battle. Help us, Father, to be people who recognize the truth and walk in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.